listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today, my guest is Miriam Mamadi, and she has described herself as a young feminist activist. She works for an NGO in Brussels, and you're going to hear all about that. But I'm very excited to have her on the Leadership Woman podcast. She's part of my Aspiring Leaders group, which I'm also very proud of. So welcome, Miriam. Thank you so much, Jill. Hello. And uh, you know how this works now. We're going to start from where you were born, and then we're going to see what you gathered along the way. So where were you born? So I was born to Moroccan parents in France, indeed. Um, And I stayed there for just a tiny bit before returning to Morocco to grow up. Okay, so you're born in France and you went to Morocco. So is that where you did your schooling? Yes, I did my schooling in Morocco uh, in the uh, like legacy of the French missionary school, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was schooled in still the French system, but in Morocco. So give me a sense of what it's like, because I've not interviewed anybody from Morocco yet. I heard all about Siberia a couple of weeks ago. So, Growing up in Morocco, what was this like? So um, I would not say that my uh, upbringing was a typical Moroccan upbringing, because obviously I had the privilege of being in both uh, countries and being born in France with a French passport and that completely changes your uh, experience in Morocco. Um, So growing up in Morocco, it was a very um, sheltered life for me. I was pretty much in contact with school and then like with my extracurricular activities, but I was not, you know, roaming the streets or anything because um, my parents and my family were very protective. Although it's not a typical uh, Moroccan like life that I lived, I had the chance of having these two contexts. And I think that played a lot into me being able to adapt easily. Um, Because although I was based in Morocco, schooled in Morocco, I was still uh, going to France a lot and experiencing that life as well. And just having uh, from a Muslim Um, developing country to a European (laughs) developed country um, like every few months it was really an interesting way of growing up and growing up in Morocco it was for me the the first thing that comes to mind is um, the sense of community and the sense of um, family I was very much in my family brought up by my family in Morocco I was in contact with Um, my extended family my my grandmother lived with us and I missed that when I moved to France later (laughs) Um, because in Morocco there is this whole idea of like your primary community your primary resource is your family and your blood and so it was very much like that Uh, my upbringing was as much my parents as it was 
uh, other people in my family, such as my grandparents. Family resource. And it's wonderful when we can say that, when we've got a stable, happy family upbringing. And the sense of community and this adaptability you're saying, going from one country to another, this clearly had an impact on you. So you were at school in Morocco then. What happened? What happened after that? I don't know if I can reply to the family thing because I would not say that like it was a rosy thing. It's it comes with its challenges and especially with this multicultural aspect and the fact that um, our norms are so influenced by the cultures that we're exposed to. So definitely um, being brought up in a family that is mainly based in Morocco, but having this contact with Europe and with France was challenging. And I think the first thing that I experienced as a woman and as a girl (laughs) and as a a woman of color um, was sexism basically because I could see the differences of treatment uh, first between me and the male counterparts um, of my family but also the difference between my experience in Morocco in a traditional kind of cultural background and then how I was treated but also how I was allowed to behave in uh, Europe so yeah that also adds to the adaptability but definitely it's not you know all pink and and flowers and and no No. and maybe if I understand this was a the beginnings of why you do what you do today maybe definitely for me um this uh, double context and the fact that I was exposed to different norms quite young uh, really allowed me to have a critical lens, basically, because I was not only brought up in one set of norms and, and, and kind of educated into it. I was exposed to various things. And so I could think for myself, what do I prefer? Where do I feel more comfortable? And why does this feel different than this? So again, I think it's a very privileged position to be in um, because I could question things and I was always allowed to question things which is always a privilege. So your parents when you say allowed your parents allowed you to question things they wanted you to experience this double life. Hmm. Exactly my parents are um, very smart and open-minded people uh, both of them and um, again, very countercurrent uh, in the country that uh, I grew up in. They really valued uh, our critical sense, but also um, like how smart we were, me and my sister and, and, and our education and, and our outspokenness, if that makes uh, any sense, uh, which is, again, uh, such a privilege to have parents like this because they were really open to us being critical um, about things or wanting to pursue things or having ambitions. Actually, they they even, you know, uh, encouraged us having ambitions. So that's amazing. That That is amazing. So what did your mother do? My mother uh, is a doctor, uh, right now a doctor in France. She was studying in France when uh, she got married to my dad and then 
uh, had us as well. So she she's a doctor. She's educated. You said both your parents were smart, open-minded. And even though you, you and your sister were clearly girls, <laughs> you were encouraged. You were allowed to have mind of your own and be outspoken. Okay, thank yes, you for this me. background. So you finished school in Morocco at what age? So I stopped uh, being schooled in Morocco at 14. Um, and I moved to France to do my high school, basically. And there was this expectation from the French schooling system that we would be more uh, challenged coming to France, but it was actually the contrary. Um, the, the school that I was in in Morocco was very difficult, very demanding, um, very competitive. And I found that although I was warned that it would be so much harder once I go to France, uh, I found that quite easy, actually. Mm. Um, and so that shows you as well, like the, the cliches and the prejudice that we have about developing countries and their standards of education. Yes, it does. It does. We we make assumptions, don't we? And we exactly. talk about assumptions a lot in our group. So you came to France to do your high school and uh, then you went on to university? I came to France. I did uh, high school. Then I went to uh, Sciences Po Lille, which is post-baccalaureate um, school um, that is quite selective. And within that, I was in a double diploma with uh, the University of Kent in the UK. Mm -hmm. So I spent um, three years there to do a bachelor's and um, a master's in the UK and also have the Sciences Po diploma. So at the end of that, I had one bachelor's and two masters. Brilliant. Well done. And so you, you were three years in the UK. Yes, in total three years in the UK. Which is where your beautiful English comes from. Thank you. <laughs> three years in Kent. So you ended up very well educated with all of this multicultural, multinational uh, experience. And you were looking around, what did you want to do with your life? So what happened then? So actually, I decided what I wanted to do with my life in high school, um, because uh, coming to France, on top of the sexism that I had already kind of recognized, I saw the effects of racism and classism, because obviously, I did not appear um, as someone who had uh, wealth. And I was in a very wealthy school uh, it was a private school in France so I discovered these forms of discrimination on top of being a woman um, and for me this frustrated me a lot uh, I have a huge problem with injustice like it really um, manifests itself in my body I, I really cannot stand it and so I had this crisis of of what do I want to do with my life because life is just unfair and I don't like it. <laughs> um, and in a very immature way in my head at the time, I was just thinking, okay, so I don't want to participate in anything basically because everything feels unfair and feels like it's adding to the problem. So how can I participate in the solution? 
And that's why in high school, I was like, okay, I'll do the studies and then I'll go and save the world, <laughs> which great ambition. Um, and the way that I wanted to do that was humanitarian work, basically. So that was my, my goal from high school. And then I went towards that all the way. So that's what I studied for. Uh, I did a master's in gender and development because I wanted to do this um, work towards women's rights and uh, ending violence against women or gender-based violence in general, including any gender. Um, and yeah, so that's what I wanted to do. I was clear on it <laughs> from the beginning. So my word. You thought, how can, what can I do? Life is unfair. How can I participate? So you decided to do your studies and then save the world. And <laughs> Not end, saving the world. <laughs> and gender-based violence. You said, you said something earlier about an immature, I think you used that word, an, mm -hmm. an immature view. So can you, can you describe how your view has matured? Yes, because... As I said, I was like seeing things in a very black and white way. Okay. Um, I think that was also a coping mechanism with realizing that the world is so, um, I don't want to say uh, fucked up, but fucked up. <laughs> the world is so, um, yeah, unfair. Like, uh, um, and, and so to cope with that, I saw it in a very black and white way. Like there is a good side and there is a bad side. And definitely now, uh, I know that it's not that simple and, and the good side is not that good if you look into it more precisely and there are very good things happening on the so-called bad side as well um, and anyone can contribute to quote-unquote saving the world. Um, you don't have to be a humanitarian to save the world. Actually, I think some people are doing it in very mundane ways that maybe don't look as good on paper but are more impactful uh, in the long run so yeah that's how like I was seeing it in a very like heroes versus villains kind of way and definitely that's not the case yeah I I think you've just described maturity but because I remember being a teenager you'd be surprised to know I can remember and <laughs> and everything was black and white it was black and white and and the longer I live the the, the more gray there is <laughs> absolutely uh, there's, there's only black and white at the very edges so yes yeah. uh, thank you thank you for describing that three years in Kent then you came out with your master's you looked for a job what, what did you go into I was looking at ways that I could influence uh the world or the sector that I was in as much as possible. And for me, working and campaigning and communication was the right fit. Also, because I had this creative kind of hunger in me that was not fulfilled with more um, like policy focused jobs or research focused jobs, although I love both of these areas. Um, and so I thought I would go for uh, something in which I can speak to people, which to, in my head, um, the, the, the everyday people are the people who are going to change things in the end. Um, and so I wanted a, a job where I could just share my vision, share the world that I wanted to be in, and hopefully connect with people that share the same. 
Um, and so I went into um, institutional nonprofit communication and I did a wonderful traineeship at the European Commission. It was really a great experience to have and I learned so much from it. Um, I worked on the European Commission gender equality strategy communication. And again, that was so good um, to learn about how policies were made uh, and also how they're communicated about and how they are made to be understood by the everyday citizen. Uh, but on the other side, I kind of understood that the institutional sector was not maybe what I needed right now because it's a very it's a slower pace, let's say, and uh, things are slower to change and and like there are good ways to do things. And for someone who was just starting and was kind of boiling with things that they wanted to do, um, it felt a little bit restrictive. And so I wanted to go in the NGO sector. And that's when I went into and um, FGMU, which is the organization that I work for now. Um, and it's an organization that is based in Brussels, but actually is an umbrella network uh, of 32 members across Europe. And all of these 32 members are working to end FGM or support survivors of FGM in their specific countries. And so I'm working for the their um, network, kind of the secretariat that brings them all together. That's been the case for a year and a half now. A year and a half. May I ask how old you are? I'm 26 last week. Wow. I love the fact that you talk about leadership. You might not know you're talking about leadership. Yes, you, you do know you're talking about leadership. So leadership is influence. You wanted to influence the world, you said. You knew your strengths, campaigning, communication. You're very people-focused. You wanted to share your vision, not join somebody else's. You wanted to share your vision. You went in to the commission. You had a great experience, but it sounds like it was like a huge, huge ocean liner, and you wanted to get into a yacht that could maneuver. Yeah, yeah? exactly. I love the word you used, boiling. You were boiling for, you, you really needed to, to do something. And now you're in this organization that seeks to have zero tolerance for female genital mutilation. Okay. Yes. I'm so impressed that at your age, you, you were already, uh, already there, Miriam. I know that when I talked about you coming on your podcast, on the podcast, it was, uh, well, I'm not, oh, not too sure. <laughs> what, what do I know? Well, um, you, know, you want to change the world, you said. Life's unfair. You want to save the world. What's next for you? Do you know what's on the horizon? I, I think what's next for me is learning, honestly. I think I was this boiling person that needed to do things right now. And I'm learning now that... I just need to maybe learn and digest everything. I get this reaction about my age or, or like where I am right now quite a bit. And sometimes the reaction I think is kind of, oh, lucky you or, but I, I think it's not that great to be somewhere 
because you felt like you had to rush. Um, I think taking your time is definitely valuable. Yeah, I, I, I want to just learn as much as possible from where I am right now and learn from groups such as, as the one that uh, I'm a part of with you. Um, I just want to learn from other people. It's such a great value of mine to just connect with people. As you said, like I'm super people focused and sometimes I forget to look horizontally and just see who is around me and who I can learn from rather than just the next step. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll change my mind in like a year, but so far I just want to learn. That's what I want to do. Yeah, great, learn. And can you remember who, who brought you into the group? It was Angela that I really thank for this. Yeah, yeah. Angela, we did a podcast with her a few months ago and she's the founder of Empowerful, of course, which is also seeking to help women and girls survivors. You're now in a learning phase, not so much of a rush. You want to look around. You said look wider and see, see what's there. And I asked you to think of three things before you came on. So what is the first one, the first thing that you think people would learn from? The first thing is that living in alignment with your values can be very empowering. Uh, so for me, uh, being young and, and maybe not completely formed when I started my career and when I started having to make decisions, um, it was really challenging. It was really anxiety inducing. Um, and once I got clear on my values, on what I want to embody, um, it really made it easier for me to take decisions because I could always refer to this knowing what I want to be in the world. Um, and so I would say like being clear on your values in every area of your life is very important. Um, and for example, I work in a feminist organization. I define myself as a feminist, but how much of a feminist can I be if I am not a feminist towards myself? And so there are all these principles of, you know, listening to people, listening to their needs, um, and and uh, allowing them to have their weaknesses, whether they are women or any gender. Um, and, you know, how can I preach for that when I'm not doing that with myself? Um, so definitely like being clear on your values and, and embodying them and living as if your values are already the norm, I think is a very important thing. And it can also end up inspiring people because when you live by your values, people tend to notice without really noticing and then take from that to their like own practice. Um, so yeah, living by your values is definitely a takeaway for me. Living by your values, because if you, if you know who you want to be in the world, then it helps you to make better decisions. Yes. They sort of guide you. Okay, beautiful. What's number two? Um, Number two is uh, that I always was, um, I felt like I was not fit for the way the world works because I'm someone who listens a lot 
and maybe I will not be the person who speaks the most in the room or who you know speaks out in general I'm always someone who will listen to people and then digest it and then maybe I'll say something but it's because I have had the time to listen and to you know process things um, and for me that was always a weakness of mine because I felt like that was not adapted to the way the world and especially the work world was was uh, set um but i found that actually it can be a strength um it can be something that people really value um in the any work sector people always like to feel heard and they always like to feel like they are being valued themselves for what they have to bring to the table and um i've seen a bunch of times that people give me feedback that they really feel like I value them and I I hear them and when we discuss things I don't feel like I have to convince them and again that was always something that was an insecurity but now I feel like it's really just my way of relating and my way of doing things and it can be a quality so yeah listening is really cool <laughs> It is really cool. Think, think first before you start to speak. And at the same time, if you listen to other people, they feel heard and they know that you value them. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And number three? Yeah, number three is coming from this kind of crisis that I had in high school and the fact that I was kind of blissfully ignorant for so long and then I realized things and it was horrible um, and in general in my life I felt like actually when I'm making progress the first steps of progress just feel horrible and and worse it actually feels like you're going backwards in the beginning and that is the case for social issues when you're just unveiling something that everyone had ignored for so long and now you cannot unsee it basically so it feels very very bad but also in personal growth when you notice a pattern or when you notice something that you um, use as a coping mechanism an unhealthy coping mechanism once you notice that and once you make the commitment to change that as long as you're not changing it it feels worse but actually it's such a great step to recognize it in the first place um, so yeah so progress can feel worse in the beginning yes progress can feel worse in the beginning things always get worse before they get better and recently you've had a success in your organization i wasn't actually aware that there was an international day so so explain what last weekend was all about Every year on the 6th of February is the International Day for Zero Tolerance for Female Genital Mutilation, the big day for uh, us as a network and our member organizations, because it's the day that everyone is looking at FGM, the numbers, where we are and what we're doing towards ending it. And people don't realize, I think, how common FGM is. 200 million survivors of FGM are roaming the earth right now. And it's estimated that unfortunately 70 million girls will be cut by 2030 uh, if we don't do anything to prevent it, obviously. It's a really great day because International Days, their function is really to make people look at the issue for at least one day. So this is the day that we try to 
have as much attention as possible on the issue. And that was definitely the case this year. Um, we did an event on uh, how communities can be the leaders of the movement to end FGM because they are the ones affected by it. Um, and we had a great attendance to the event. We had great engagement during the event and afterwards. And in general, we received so much feedback on our work, on how important it was to address FGM. Um, and that, that felt really great because again, like the people, the everyday citizen that maybe don't look at this problem as something that they can do anything about, they are the ones who can do something about it, either by raising awareness or pressuring um, their political leaders to do something about it or giving their money to organizations. They have power, maybe individually it's very small, but as a group, like it, it's the only way that we change things is through the people. Beautifully said. I think that's a brilliant place to end. So Miriam, thank you so much for coming on the Leadership Woman podcast. Thank you for coming and telling me your story. It was fascinating. I'm sure it will fascinate others and inspire other young people to get out there and do things. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and thank you to anyone who finds this interesting. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm so grateful to be part of, of the group because uh, just seeing other people being as driven and inspired fills my battery up, basically. So um, thank you for having me here and also in the group. You're very welcome. Fills your battery. That's lovely to hear.